The following audio is from Central Christian Church, located in Portales, New Mexico. To connect with Central, go to centralwired.org.
How many of you have ever been in a situation where you don't know what to say? All of us. I've got a little example here, and I want to qualify this. This is purely fictional, okay? All right. But let's say you come home, you've had a long day, you've worked late. You come in, your wife's sitting in the chair. You can tell she's been crying, and you freeze. You say, what's wrong? She just shakes her head. You're frozen. You just, no, I'm serious. What's wrong? Finally, she just says, it's Monday. <laughs> what did I forget on Monday? And the puzzle look on my face, you know, you're sitting here, you're trying to figure out what to do, and Finally, she reaches over and just says, no, it's Monday, and the bachelor sent the wrong girl home. (laughs) You know, you you didn't know what to say, and it was probably best. But have you ever been in a situation where you didn't know what to pray? That's where it gets tough. If you've ever had to stand around a hospital bed, you want to pray. You need to pray. And there is absolutely nothing there. That's when it gets tough. Romans 8.26 Helps us through those times. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for. But the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. We're not alone. I was reading some stuff by C.S. Lewis. And when he wrote this, his wife had cancer and she was dying. And he was talking about dealing with the pain. And he said something that is, was pretty profound. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it because I'll mess it up. But he said, if we focus on the pain, we will never heal. He likened that to getting a shot. No one likes to get a shot. They hurt. They sting. But we go through that pain because of what's beyond it. That's where the healing is. So we can't just focus on the pain or we will never heal. We look at what's ahead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father. And the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. We all go through things that we don't like. And we all ask the question, why? Sometimes that answer is simply so that you can help someone else later. You know, all these songs that we sang this morning, they're powerful. They were about comfort. 
a refuge in what God does for us. As we take communion here in a minute, we're commemorating something that brings us the most comfort of anything that can ever be. When you talk about how pain can lead to comfort. I don't know if any of y'all have ever read the book, Heaven is for Real. A little three-year, almost four, let's call him a four-year-old boy. He's talking to his dad. And the little boy had been sick. Backstory, he almost died and he went to heaven and he's telling everyone about what he saw. And he said, I sat in Jesus' lap, and he told me that he had to come to the cross and die so that everyone on earth can go see God. That's our comfort. And that's something else that we can pass on and help others. Let's remember that sacrifice when we protect this communion today it is a comfort that comes from God shall we pray Heavenly Father we we thank you that you are the comforter we acknowledge that we do not understand your ways we do not understand why things happen Father during those times please Lord build our faith Help us to trust. Draw us close to you, close to Jesus. Thank you for Jesus' gift for us that gave us the opportunity to be your child and to spend eternity with you. We ask this prayer in the name of Jesus.
God isn't scared of what scares you. Franklin used this slide and this concept, and we're going to use it as a springboard for some pretty heavy discussions. Uh, I'm not going to lie to you. This is going to, we're going to talk about some pretty heady and heavy stuff. And so I'm asking you to tune in and stay tuned in, because if you only get part of this and then you walk out, then you're going to be, what in the world did he talk about? And you still may be that way, but if you give me a chance to get to the end, I would really appreciate it. I want to show some images, and I want to ask this question. Are there ideologies that scare you? And I want to see how these images affect you. You don't have to answer out loud, but I just want to, I want to hear in your heart. Let's see this first one. How does this image affect you? You see, that's a pretty divisive picture right there. Some people are very, very positive on this, and some people are very negative on this. There are connotations all over the place. Or what about this next one? Now, to some of you youngers, this is not going to matter much to you, but some of you to a certain age, this person on the left is Jane Fonda. And in the Vietnam War era, she was, uh, she was protesting the war and supporting Vietnam and very, very divisive in our country. And people of that age there were people last night going, oh, we don't like her at all. You know, there, there is a division in that image. What about this next one? The big bad communism against one student, the image in Tiananmen Square of that one student standing strong. And this image right here immediately causes other feelings because some have said this is a hoax, this was a setup, so you're, you're torn in between. Do we... Do we, are we like that or we hate that? Or, you know, how do we feel about some of these things? Sometimes these images have uh, a lot of backstory to them. Or what about this one? That's hard to look at, isn't it? You see, all of these images are very emotional. And they cause, <laughs> I could feel some of your stomachs clenching. And some of you are going, you better get to a point and you better get there in a hurry, man. I don't know where you're going with this. I want... I get that I've probably offended some of you already. That's not my purpose. I, I'm okay with that if you'll just stick with me. We want to look at some of these difficult sayings. I want you to hold on to that feeling of whatever of those images that bothered you. I want you to hold on to that feeling. And as we ask some tough questions, I want you to, I want you to have an informed faith. Especially when I make this statement here. Is God racist? We're in this series called He Said What? It's the shocking statements of Jesus. We're going to start in Matthew chapter 10. If you'd go there and then have uh, be ready to go to John chapter 8. We're going to go to two different stories. We're actually going to reference a lot of stories today. So I'm hoping that you'll have your uh, notepad out, that you can write down some verses and check later if you're online and you're watching online or listening on the radio. Thank you for joining Central Christian Church Portalis. The shocking statements that Jesus makes... So we can be people of the Word. So we can know what the Word says. I'm in Matthew chapter 10. If you have NIV or NLT, you'll see a header on there that he is sending out the 12 apostles. And that is the context of what all of this. I don't want to read all of it. I just want to key in on verse 5 and 6. Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. Now you might be sitting there going, wow, Don, you're coming in a little hot right here. You're, you're a little testy, all right? Okay, I get it. But I want us to have a good sense of what the Bible says, to be literate about what the Bible says, so that we can be people of the Word. Amen? Be people of the Word. We need to know what it says, so we will do what it says. But this controversial passage has been used to say that God or even God's people are racist. And I want us to be able to defend the Word. Why would Jesus say something so outlandish to just only go to one group, especially when you go with me to John chapter 8? Flip over to John chapter 8. And in this particular passage, I want us to see 
the, the dichotomy here. This is not the only shocking statement Jesus says. In John chapter 8 and verse 42 is where I want to pick up. In context, he is talking to Israelite leaders, to Jewish leaders in the tabernacle. Listen in verse 42. Jesus told them, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come to you from God. I'm not here on my own, but, you, but he sent me. Why can't you understand what I'm saying? It's because you can't even hear me. For you are chil- the children of your father, the devil, and you love to do the evil things he does. How do we make sense of these seemingly contradictory statements? On one side, Jesus says, only go to Israel. Those are God's chosen people. Don't go any of the Gentiles. On the other side, he says, Israel, your father is the devil. Does that sound weird to any of you? Do you see the the bizarreness of these statements? Has Jesus lost his mind? They seem so incongruous to what Jesus has taught. He says, go nowhere among the Gentiles. But Gentiles are all throughout the story all throughout the story of life started with Abraham was a Gentile because there weren't Israelites until his grandson Israel Jacob comes along and becomes Israel there weren't even Israelites there weren't Jewish people then they were all Gentiles at that point there are Gentiles everywhere throughout his story in Jesus lineage there's a lady named Rahab Rahab had a little past, didn't she? She had a different kind of job, not one we would celebrate in church. What about, what about Ruth? Ruth is in her story. Ruth's not even a, uh, an Israelite. She's a Moabite. She was grafted in. Or what about the Magi? In the, this, in the Christmas story, you have these wise men coming in. They are Persian stargazers. But not only are they stargazers, they are what we would call astrologers that are picking their moods by the stars. They're picking their actions by the stars. And the Bible clearly says, don't get caught up in astrology. Why would those people be in this story? And they're absolutely essential to Jesus' birth story because when they come along and tell Herod, that's how how Mary and Joseph escaped Egypt. So they're a part of this story. Does... Jesus not like Gentiles? You see, I think maybe what we need to back up and realize is that in that culture, there were only two groups of people. There were Jews and Gentiles. That's it. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. Now, in our culture, we, you can have, well, Hispanic and Latino and Cuban and Puerto Rican. Or if it was Asian, well, you could be Chinese or Japanese or Korean or Filipino. You see what I'm saying? There's lots of variations. In that world, there were only two. Jews, everybody else. If you weren't one, you were the other. And I would be willing to bet that pretty much every person in this room is a Gentile. So does Jesus not want us? And most of us remember the story of the parable of the lost sheep. Do we remember the parable of the lost sheep? It leads into the, it's on the Sermon on the Mount, it leads into the parable of the lost son. We sing the song about his overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99, leaves the 99 sheep. It's all about that story. In the Luke version of that story, the sheep are called lost. But in the Matthew version of that story, the sheep have gone astray, lost, gone astray. There could be an argument made that in the Luke version, the fault lies with the owner. But in the Matthew version, the fault lies with the sheep. And if we're the sheep in that metaphor, does he, does he want us? Or what about the Canaanite woman? Matthew 15, write that one down. Matthew 15, what about the Canaanite woman? This is a woman from Canaan that comes to Jesus, chases Jesus, pleads with him to have mercy on her, to heal her, his, her, her demon-possessed daughter. Have mercy on me, son of David. She cries out to him, and Jesus ignores her. I mean, Scripture flat out says he ignores her. 
It keeps on walking. That's very strange behavior for a God that has welcomed everybody, true? And, and then she says, please, please have mercy on me. And he's, his response, and it looks like he doesn't even turn around. He just says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And he makes this statement. It isn't right to take food from children and give it to dogs. Do you remember this story? Dogs? Jesus called a woman. A, I don't care what culture you're in. That's, a, that's kind of not, not nice. And that's so not what Jesus was. And Jesus comes along, or, or the woman comes along right after that, and she says, yeah, but the dogs get to eat the scraps from the table. And she responds that way. Or, or what about the, the encounter in Mark 9? Write down Mark 9, and it's, it's in the book of Mark, but it's John that has this inter- encounter with some people in the community. And he says, Jesus, I saw these people, they were casting out demons in your name, and I told them to stop. I told them to stop because they were not one of us. Now, when he says one of us, what he means there is they're not Jewish. They're not our people. They're not one of our kind. They're the other kind. And last week, Franklin used this one and, and talked about why do we pray in Jesus' name? Because of the authority. Because we are His ambassadors. The authority and the power there. In the Semitic culture, all throughout Israel, when we were there, they kept talking about they name everything there. They name every tree. They name every park. They name every street. Everything is named. This building is so-and-so. Because names have power. Names have authority. So, why is this guy, and and it says he was casting out demons. It didn't say he was trying to cast out demons. It said he was actually casting out demons in Jesus' name. Why was he doing it out of context? It seems like the perfect time for Jesus to just settle this racial issue once and for all. And John sets him up perfect. Hey, Hey, Jesus, I took care of you, man. That guy was not one of us, so I showed the divide that we're better, and, you know, this is it. So you can just let him have it. And what is Jesus' response? Leave him alone. If they're not against us, they are for us. Okay, so you've been sitting here for ten minutes. You're going, okay, Don, is there a point anywhere in this? You can read Bible stories. Great. What does that mean? Okay. Let's go back to that John 8 passage, okay? That John 8 where he says, your father, the devil. Let me ask you this question. Do Jewish people have horns, physical horns on their head? No, it's preposterous. It's laughable. Do you realize in the, I didn't know this till, till this week. <coughs> Excuse me. The, it was a popular cultural icon in the 16 and 1700s. They believed Jewish people physically had horns under their hair, under their hats, that they physically had horns. And it came from this passage, your father, the devil. Horns were associated with ancient gods, little g gods, as, as uh, symbols of power. The bigger the horn, the more power. Uh, let's, let's modernize it. Marvel fans? Okay, when Loki comes out in that green outfit the first time, and he's got the goofball, big old horns on the front. I always thought that was a, what is the big deal? Why, you know, that's an ugly look for you, buddy. And, and those are to symbolize power. The bigger the horns, the bigger the power. And there was this belief that Jewish people had horns. And this verse has been a source of hatred towards Israel for decades. In March 21, March 21st, 1933, Germany was in turmoil. Just two months prior, Hitler and the Nazis had taken over Germany. And there were even people that were pro-Nazi that were uncomfortable with all of the things that were going on. There were some drastic measures, really draconian things going on, you know, the the curfew and you got the Gestapo and all of that business. And even the people that were pro-Hitler were uncomfortable with what was happening. And Hitler quotes this passage right here in John 8. He uses the Bible to justify the genocide of the Holocaust. Hitler actually uses Scripture all throughout his 
writings, through Mein Kampf and through many things. He takes God's Word and twists it. Now, I'm willing to bet none of us in here would approve of that. Would approve of using that verse to, to justify genocide? No. But here's my point. If we're truly going to be people of the Word, if people of the Word matters, we've got to know what it says so we will do what it says. And if we're not careful, people can take God's Word and use it against us. They'll take little bits here and little bits here, and they'll say, see, it contradicts itself. I mean, good grief, Don, you were over here, and then you were over here, and then you were over here. Just in this last ten minutes, you've contradicted yourself. If you take little snippets, yes, but in the totality, you see the love of God. You'll see there is nothing that would back up God as racist. There is nothing that would back that up. But if we don't know what it says, that can hurt us. Why then would Jesus say, go nowhere among the Gentiles? And I, I think the obvious follow-up question would be, is Jesus racist? Well, again, this is my opinion, but I don't think that that's what Jesus is saying. Again, in their culture, two groups. There's Jews and non-Jews. Ready? Okay, there's Jews and non-Jews. That's it. That's all they had. And... And I think the prevailing thought was, if the Jews will listen to Jesus, if the Jews will follow along, the Gentiles will follow along after that. They would make the impact, impact in the culture. I don't think Jesus was ever dividing races. I don't think he was excluding races. I think he was focusing his resources. I was visiting with Landry last night after Saturday night service, and I was asking her what she thought about all this. And she goes, well, I appreciate it, Dad, but I don't get it. I, how could anybody think that Jesus is racist? I mean, we know the, the t- totality of the story. That's right. Jesus wasn't racist. It's very easy to see that. But you know what? Some of his followers have been. Some of his followers have used scripture to put people down do we see a racial divide and do we do anything about it buddy of mine dave mcfadden is the missions director for the baptist churches on the eastern side of the state many of you may know david and i talked to him last week and they used to do a big survey thing and i said do y'all still do that he goes yeah we just got it this week and he sent me a bunch of the data they take the census and they survey people all over the state of new mexico but then they break it out per county. So the data I got this week is from 2022 of Roosevelt County, not nationwide. This is current radical stuff. And and, and he sent me pages and pages of this stuff. I'm never going to get all the way through it, but I want to share some things in the next few weeks. But here's a couple of things I wanted you to get out of this. In Roosevelt County, in 2022, this county, 54% of this county was white. 41% Hispanic, Latino, 3% were put in another category, mostly Native American or Asian American of some sort, and 2% black. But those two big ones, 54% white, 41% Hispanic. Do you realize half of our county is different than you? You hear me? Half of our county is different than you. Do you have the courage to speak to somebody that's not like you? Do you have the the courage to speak to somebody that's not one of your kind? And yes, I was specific. I'm not trying to be racist. I'm just trying to follow what Jesus said. You see, when Jesus told them to go only to the lost people of Israel, I don't think he was being racist, and I don't think it was a, a lifelong mandate. I think it was a momentary mandate for that mission. Let's get our resources together. Let's go get our people while we can. Now, later on, he says, go into all the world, preach the gospel. Anybody remember that one? That is a lifelong mandate, okay? That is one for you and I. That doesn't run out. No, God is not racist. God is not judgmental in that realm. He is the judge, but he is not judging on skin color. And his followers shouldn't be either. We should be pointing people to a Jesus that loves. I want to go a little bit deeper in that data study on a couple of other questions I got out of it. Uh, 
one of the questions was, they, they surveyed all these people and they asked, what are reasons for not participating in church activities? What are some reasons that you would not participate in church activities? And they gave them a list and check all that apply. But far and away, the number one reason, 46% of those surveyed said, the reason they do not participate in church activities is because religious people are too judgmental and too elitist. Agree, disagree? I don't think they're wrong. You hear me? I don't think that's us, and I don't want it to be us, but I think overall totality, they could make an argument. But to follow that up, their top reasons they would be willing and they would be open to church and far and away, 64% said the reason they might consider going to church is because of warm and friendly encounters with attenders. They don't want to go to church because they're all judgmental people in there. But they might go to church because some of those people have been nice to me. You hear me? There we are. That's, that's, that's it. The people that you encounter on a daily basis. I even, I'll even be full transparent. The reason they would want to come to church because of great sermons, not very high on the list. 34%. Way low. Well, maybe they'd want to come because of of uh, contemporary worship. Nineteen percent. So all the church things that we do are not what's drawing people to church. You are what's drawing people to church. How you talk to people in your soccer and your your school and your classes and your friendships and your workers. How how you point people to Jesus. The more we come together, you hearing me? The more we point the community to Him. That should be our goal. One of the most powerful speeches in modern history was not actually caused by the person that made it. August 28, 1963, almost 60 years ago this fall, Martin Luther King Jr. was the keynote speaker at a thing called the March on Washington. He stood before a quarter of a million people out on the mall in Washington. It was to be a peaceful protest for equality. But it was on a hot Wednesday, and a hot day leads to hot emotions. You're tracking with me? And it was a tinderbox of emotions. There were, Martin Luther King had to walk a very fine line. He was the keynote speaker. There was a bunch of people that wanted him to incite riots and let's make change. There's a bunch of people that thought he was going to incite riots, and they had a lot of peace, people, uh, police protection around, FBI and all kinds of things. There were people that wanted him to preach. There were people that wanted him to talk about jobs. One of his closest advisors, a guy named Clarence Jones, and he told him, he suggested this metaphor. He said, talk to them about a bad check. And the meaning by that, behind that is he said, America needs to make good on their promise of equality for all people. Dr. King put all of his notes together. He was, he was just torn through this whole thing. Stayed up very late at night got up very early to work on this, and he took his notes on a yellow notepad, not typed out, you know, just handwritten notes up to the podium. And he talked to 250,000 people. It was very eloquent. People clapped at the right times. It was good. And then he paused. He would say in an interview later, he didn't even know why he paused. But in that pause... He heard a voice from somebody on the podium that said, tell him about the dream. Turned out it was Mahalia Jackson, the great uh, the, the queen of gospel music. It's Mahalia, and she said it again. Tell him about the dream. And he walked back over to the podium, he pushed his notes aside, and he began to preach. Four words that he had spoken many times in Chicago and Birmingham and Detroit, but never as emotional as on that day. It was never even intended to be heard. Now, it was one of his catch lines. He used it in sermons, and, and he had used different pieces of it, but he didn't write any of it down. The next seven minutes were all ad lib and one of the greatest speeches of all time. We actually have people in Portales that were at that event, that were in that giant crowd 
And it's incredible to hear that story. I'm moved by his, his speaking and his power and that dream. But friends, the fact is, every single one of us has the power to do something. Yes, it is very odd that I am a tall white man talking about racism. I get it, all right? I get that I don't have any authority here. I don't have a clue what it feels like to be black or Hispanic. I don't know what it feels like to wonder if, if I'm going to be harassed by police or people in authority. Going on with that, I don't know what, it's, what it feels like to be sexually harassed or pressured, but some in our church family do. I'll be honest, I don't even know what it feels like to live with alcoholic or abusive parents. I had great parents. I, I, don't, I never had to worry about any of that. I don't know what that feels like. I've never really felt oppression in my whole life, except for when you make fun of my Dallas Cowboys. That's the only time. I've never felt oppression. So is it right for me to talk about this? It can't be, Don. Or can it be? Friends, until we start normalizing conversations about difficult subjects like racism and judgmentalism, those things are going to continue. We need to be the people that are leading the charge. Now, some of you are sitting right here going, man, I wish he would get off of this. I get it. This is a difficult subject. But I believe we need to talk about this. I'm not talking politics. I'm talking people. You hear me? I'm talking about how we treat people. Because if what we're doing in here isn't making a difference on how we treat people out there, then what we're doing in here isn't doing any good. We've got to not just sing. We've got to change our minds. Not just worship and have our 30 minutes and get a coffee and all right. No, we've got to be different. Why is it we can feel empathy for somebody that has gone through a rough patch? Anybody? Can't you do that? We can feel empathy. Oh, man, they had such a rough upbringing. Their home life was so terrible. Why can we feel empathy for that? But we can't when race comes into play. Friends, we need to accept that people of color, black, Hispanic, have felt oppressed, have looked down, been looked down on, have been joked at. Whether we did it or not is irrelevant. We need to treat people and realize they've had some rough things happen. We need to accept that people come in here that have baggage, that have made mistakes, that have lived different lives than you, that have been alcoholic, that have had an abortion, that have had sexual identity questions. We need to accept that they have baggage and point them to Jesus. We're not going to make the impact for Jesus that we could. I love this quote from Alistair Begg. The world is watching to see if we're really different or not. Friends, the world is filled with hate crimes and hate words. But guess what? So was Jesus' time. If you've been studying with us in Hebrews, our college group, or there's a Sunday morning group that's studying Hebrews, if you've been studying Hebrews, those are people that are victims of hate crimes. The Jews don't want them, the Gentiles don't want them, the Romans don't want them, nobody wants them, everybody hates them. And they're dealing with hate crimes themselves. When Jesus says, go nowhere among the Gentiles, he's not focusing on, on dividing, he's focusing on, on pulling people together. He loves us. There you go. Uh, serving those up for you right there, all right? He loves all of us, and I can prove it to you quickly as we finish up. You remember the Canaanite woman we talked about a few minutes ago, the one that Jesus said, yeah, I wouldn't give it to the dogs. And she comes back with, yeah, but even the dogs eat scraps from the table. Jesus' response to her is spectacular. He says, your faith is great. He said that to a Canaanite woman. Do you realize Canaanites were supposed to be wiped out when Israel went into the Canaan land? She shouldn't even be there. And Jesus said, you have great faith. He only said that two times in all of Scripture. He said it to that woman. He said it to another guy. He came to Jesus and said, my servant is sick. Can you heal him? 
He says, yeah, come on, let's go to your house. And the guy said, no, I'm not worthy to have you in my house. I'm just, I know you're a man of authority. You speak it and he'll be healed. And Jesus said, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. That was a Roman centurion. A Canaanite woman and a Roman centurion. The only people Jesus ever said, your faith is great. You know who he didn't say it to? Peter. Paul. A bunch of people that were right around him. Friends, I want us to be I want us to look at these shocking statements because I want us to be able to defend his word. I'm not trying to upset. I'm trying to get us to know the word and to be able to share the word. Because his way is better. Thank you for listening to audio from Central Christian Church in Portales, New Mexico. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To connect with us, visit our website at centralwired.org.